with the ESG space in particular, I think it's so important that as that space kind of gains popularity with this generation, we continue to make those investment products really accessible. Um, we continue to kind of support the banks and financial institutions that are providing a wider array of products to the previously underserved. It all comes down to access. And I think it's really exciting to watch that evolve. That's Mary Cobble on how she hopes the ESG investing space will continue to grow. And this is Phoebe Drummond with Webcast. Welcome, Mary. I'm so excited you're here and you're able to come. For everyone listening, there's a funny backstory to this episode, honestly. One of my best friends growing up goes to NYU and she's on the board of a club there called EDG. It stands for Economic Development and Growth. And she was telling me how they had the coolest speaker who was actually from BC. Surprise, it was Mary. And I immediately thought, wait a second, she needs to come on to Webcast. So I reached out to Mary and she has been more than happy to work with me. Come speak on Webcast, which I'm so thankful for. We have a lot to cover today from Mary's first job in investment banking to what she does now at Domini. And we're going to try to answer the question, what does an analyst actually do? Because if that word is in your internship title for the summer and you have no idea what it means, you are not alone. So I will let Mary introduce herself and we can jump in. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. Um, yeah, I love the, the NYU connection. My parents always said good people find good people. So the fact that that ended in a new BC connection, I, I love it. Um, I was just going to say before we get going into all the fun stuff, um, being an employee of Domini Impact Investments, just wanted to clarify that the remarks that I make today are my own. They do not constitute the views of Domini Impact Investments or should be taken as investment advice. Um, so with that being said, yes, like Phoebe mentioned, I am a financial analyst at Domini. Um, I started in July 2020, so right in the heart of the pandemic, which was a very crazy experience. Um, I came over after doing a year in investment banking. I had spent both of my college summer internships in IB at the same firm, um, spent some time in the power and utilities team, um, then spent another summer in consumer products and retail, which is where I started full-time and really had a great experience there. Um, can always go back and talk about the, the woes and the, and the fun of, of investment banking, but um, wanted to, to mention more than anything that, you know, as you get started as an analyst, and we'll go into <laughs> the, the thralls of what the, what the heck that means. Um, <laughs> the ominous term. Oh, the ominous of, you know, technical skills and financial <laughs> modeling and what, whatever that is. And walk you um, through $10 of depreciation. <laughs> oh my gosh. And how does it hit your bottom line? I don't even know if I could answer that for you on the spot today, if that, if that yeah, helps anybody out there. <laughs> um, but I think it is so, so important to mention, you know, as I went through this job transition that when you start as an analyst, the the other stressful thing that's going to come up right away is like, okay, so you got the job in, in IB or as an analyst, what next? You know, do you go to a PE firm? Do you go to a hedge fund? Mm -hmm. You know, and there are all these new terms that are being thrown at you and you're like, what the heck? And I certainly never had a plan in that respect. I was not one of the people who hit the desk on day one and was like, I'm going to do my two years and and get out. I tried to go in you know, with really open eyes, 
eager to learn, um, try to figure out maybe through my experiences what was going to make sense for me. And I had always had this interest since I was at BC in kind of the world of sustainable finance or sustainable investment. And um, for any of the CSOM kids out there who had to read The Blue Sweater by Jacqueline Novogratz and then take Portico, obviously, um, my interest really started with that. And from day one, as you know, a a newly minted undergrad business student, I had this idea of like, oh my gosh, you can work in business and do a little bit of good and have that as a priority. So it was always in the back of my head and kind of through serendipitous connections. Um, as a senior at BC, I, besides being a finance major, was an English major, had this outstanding, phenomenal woman, Robin Leidenberg, as a professor. She unfortunately, um, retired after I had her as, as a professor. So I don't, I don't think anyone now would have had the chance to meet her, but she was amazing. And she dropped one day that her husband was involved in the world of um, sustainable investing or ESG investing. And I ran up to her after class and I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm going into banking, but I'm really interested. Do you think that you could introduce me to your husband? And so we kind of played a little bit of phone tag, never were able to connect when I was a senior, but I had it in the back of my mind, like, okay, this is a good connection in the back pocket um, and never really kind of let that idea die. (laughs) Um, And so after I had been in my IB role for about six months, and again, people are going crazy with the PE recruiting and they're already interviewing and I'm just, my head is swimming, like, okay, don't think I want to do that. It doesn't, it doesn't really call out to me. And I reached out to this professor um, again, and I was able to get in touch this time with her husband, Steve Leidenberg. Um, and we met up and, and he still works with Domini. He was one of the original kind of co-founders of the first index that Amy Domini founded and, and the firm. Um, and we met and he was amazing. And he's like, you know, come in, meet the team. One thing led to another there was a position that had opened up. And so I was able to start in that role again about a year after I had, I'd started in my first job. So um, I've been with Domini now for coming up on a year and a half, which is so crazy. Um, I've seen everything and back and how I feel like in, in terms of um, the transition from, from an IB role to now a market-facing position. It's been a vertical learning curve <laughs> at times, but but really had a good time learning and and I'm loving uh, what I'm doing now. And before you go any further, can you give an overview of what Domini does, how they fit into the ESG investing ecosystem? Totally. So Domini is a family of mutual funds. Um, so they have a few products that are equities based, so equity um, funds, and then they do have a fixed income fund as well. And I know all of these terms were still kind of mumbo jumbo to me when I was in college and coming out of college. Um, So this is totally just ripped from pretty much Investopedia, but just like kind of lay the groundwork on what a mutual fund is. Um, So this is a type of financial vehicle that is made up of a pool of money that is um, kind of coming together from a ton of different investors um, to invest in securities, again, like stocks, bonds, money market instruments, and other similar assets. Um, They are actively managed by professional money managers. So in my case, that's our our two portfolio managers um, who are the CEO of the company and the company's founder, Amy. Um, 
and they allocate the fund's assets to produce um, or attempt to produce capital gains or income for the investors. So if you as an investor are like, okay, I really want to start investing, but I don't know what stocks I want to pick. And like, I'm, I'm interested in, in this topic area, but I don't know how to pick what's best. By investing in a mutual fund, it's kind of like saying, okay, well, here's X amount of dollars. I know that it's going to go into that broader again, like sort of topic or whatever you're interested in investing in. Um, And it's going to be split up between the assets that are in that portfolio. But you don't have to pick, you know, that I want 10 stocks of this or 10 shares of this and uh, five shares of that. The the money managers are going to handle that for you. So that's kind of like baseline. So Domini is a a family of several of funds of that nature. Um, And of course it is, completely driven by impact investing standards. So just sort of like a a fun fact, Um, Amy Domini, our company's founder, and her team actually launched the very first social and environmentally screened index fund in the world in 1991. So she is kind of the queen of the space. Yes, she is. (laughs) Yeah, it's, oh my gosh, what a queen. And it is so much fun to work with her and learn from her Um, has has truly been an honor. and then really through the 90s, she and again, her, her team um, really paved the way for impact investing as we know it today and, and kind of the expectations around the space. So what's really cool about our firm and kind of what sets them apart is that, you know, you have some of these really big banks or corporations these days that offer something like a green bond or, you know, okay. like a, um, an impact portfolio, something like that. Everything Domini touches is guided by those principles. And for us, the two kind of twin goals that we um, seek to prioritize above all else are ecological sustainability and universal human dignity. So mm, it's really amazing that. when yeah. yeah, when you know that those at the end of the day are the underlying drivers of, of what your firm is about. Um, you know, it makes it really easy to, to show up and be excited about what you're doing. Um, so yeah, everything that we're doing again, kind of goes through those funnels, um, whether that is an exclusionary approach. So again, kind of, I guess, to get into some logistics of ESG, there's sort of two ways that you can invest through the ESG mindset. One's by excluding certain things and one is by kind of like promoting certain things. Right. So, um, with Domini, um, as an example, we very, um, explicitly um, exclude things like weapons and firearms, nuclear power, fossil fuels, for-profit prisons, things like that. Um, If a company has anything in relation to to those areas, we're not going to invest in them. They're immediately excluded. Um, So if you're kind of taking a top-down approach, that's how some funds will, will operate an index. And as long as a company passes through those thresholds, that's how you come up with your bucket of companies that are investable. For us, we we have um, kind of that exclusionary approach at work with some of the portfolios, but we also manage some portfolios through the lens of, okay, we're looking for companies that explicitly do these key things. So okay. instead of saying we're going to exclude out these activities, we're saying we want to promote community building. We want to promote green energy, kind of um, going after it and finding those names that are really doing the work on the ground to make those things happen um, and allowing investors to, to invest in um, kind of the future of those spaces. 
Yeah, and my follow-up question from there, how is the type of investing that you do now different from what investing meant in the realm of investment banking? Because you mentioned that you are now in a market-facing role. Can you explain what that is compared to IB, compared to sell side, compared to buy side? Um, it's actually so funny you asked that. So one of the first like conversations I ever had when I was recruiting for IB, I kind of made the mistake. I was in totally over my head. So again, when it when it comes down to it for anyone out there who's still like, I don't even know how to start recruiting. Um, those first conversations are always your best learning opportunities as yeah. I learned over and over again. Um, but I got on the phone with someone and I was like, well, I want to be on an IB team because I want to be a buy side blah, blah, blah. And he was like, okay, well, let's back up. I don't know if you totally know what that means. <laughs> so, um, for at least the role that I was in, um, in banking, because you're kind of more on, so I, again, I think I said I was on a consumer products and retail yes. coverage team. Um, so I don't even know if you would qualify it as like a buy side or sell side role based on what I was doing, because the way that our bank kind of divided up client work was that, um, you know, let's say a company like Target um, came in and wanted to buy another company. Um, since that's a, you know, a CPR type of deal that would come through our team. And depending on the, the deal size and the expertise needed, sometimes we would just handle that deal within our team with our, you know, okay. managing directors, like yeah, expertise, and then putting together a little deal team within consumer. Um, other times it was something a little bit more substantial. Our bank had specific product teams as they called it at the time. So that's something like a team specifically dedicated to mergers and acquisitions or specifically oriented towards equity capital markets or debt capital markets that would kind of be the product specialist. And we would work together to come up with, again, if it was, you know, a, like to stay with the example of Target, if Target wanted to buy another company, maybe the consumer team is coming up with that list of potential candidates that they could buy. And then the M&A team is doing the modeling and a lot more of the logistical side of, of that piece. Um, so that was kind of from, again, my, my IB experience. It's far more centered around sort of that um, the deal expertise and how you're catering to that specific client. Um, from what I was doing, it's like, because I didn't work in the equity capital markets team, I think they're really the only ones that were market facing in that way. Okay. And, and how would you define market facing? Um, I guess I will back up and say, I think the term market facing in the financial industry um, likely means a lot of different things in different roles. And people probably overhype it um, and make it more elusive than it really needs to be. But from my own experience and um, the jobs I've had, it has very literally meant the difference between directly working within and making um, decisions. I'm spending good majority of my day on the Bloomberg terminal, literally watching different stock activity, um, analyzing actual market movements, since, that, since that's going to have like that very immediate impact on our portfolios. Um, and my job really at the end of the day is help our portfolio managers make the best decisions they can about the companies that we're holding, know what's going on, have the right supporting information, whatever that 
maybe. Um, and I was going to say too, by, by definition, I think you could consider my role now like a buy side analyst because it's in an asset management role where we're actively buying and selling to, to manage a portfolio. Um, but even those terms, I think, can be misnomers or can mean different things in different jobs. So I think if I've learned anything, it's always good to just ask if someone tells you a role and you're like, well, what does that yeah. mean for you? It's, it's always so much easier just to ask somebody what they do. And I think that always provides better clarity, at least from, from what I've seen. Um, but in contrast to that, in my IB role, since my team was an industry coverage team, um, that was consumer products and retail, I think I mentioned, the work and analysis I was doing there very rarely required needing to know at that hyper-technical level what was happening to a, co- a client company's stock day in and day out or, or throughout a day even. Um, the overall valuation of the company, if you will, would, would have been greatest concern to us. So the market value piece, which is made up of how their stock trades, that was really just a piece of the puzzle. Um, it was way more important for me to understand what was happening at a sector level, what was happening with the client company's competitors. You know, if we were in the middle of an M&A deal, maybe knowing, you know, what the acquisition targets are up to, if it was a possible merger, looking at those components. Um, But even that being said, that was from my experience in that industry coverage role. If you're an equity capital markets analyst in an investment bank, or if you're a a future sales and trading analyst, I'm sure those would would technically, (laughs) I'm sure those would technically be considered, you know, more market facing, or at least by my definition would be. but, but like I said, I think it's so smart of you to ask because so often people are afraid to just ask what those job roles really mean. And because they can always be so different, it's, it's always good to just ask. <laughs> so hopefully that's helpful. But I think that's kind of then when you talk about like, well, what the heck is an analyst like actually supposed to show up and do? I was trying to noodle on this before we got on. And I think... If I go back to my college days and, and when I was first recruiting for, for some of those roles, if anyone could have told me something that would have been helpful, it honestly probably would have been that as an analyst, your number one priority is supporting your team. And I okay. don't mean that to be an oversimplification by any means, because obviously that takes on so many different faces as you start work. Um, but you know, in banking, that might mean that you're getting ready for a client presentation. Your managing director is the only one who's going to it. And he says, okay, I need you to do a new scan over what happened in the last two weeks in this sector. And like, just come up with some bullet points that I should know going into this conversation. You know, where is the sector, um, you know, valued at right now versus some other industries or where's the company valued against its peers? Kind of different things like that. Um, you may be coming up with supporting materials for a senior member of your team. Like when a deal was happening in banking with a client, you may be the one who is kind of just sending out like the calendar invites and making sure everyone's on the same page, has the right yeah. materials. So kind of handling more of the administrative components. But again, it's to support the broader team. And I think that that's something that 
definitely carried through to my role now. Again, the the sort of individual components that I'm able to take ownership of are very different now. That being said, everything I'm doing is really to make sure our portfolio managers and the broader investment team are completely in the loop um, as to what's going on with our portfolio companies. Um, if there's any any big news that's happened, anything that's coming up that we should be aware of, whether that's in the macro environment or just you know within the broader market. Um, but you really are that supporting person who's like, okay, we're all on the same page. We're all working with the same info. Let's make decisions from here. Let's go forward from here. So again, I hate to oversimplify to saying like being the supporting member, but um, I do think if you break it down, that's typically what, what they're expecting you to do. No, and I think that's so important that you bring that up and that you were able to articulate so well the value that that brings to your team and the firm as a whole, because I think there's been a lot of just writing in general, talking about how Gen Z wants to change the world and we want to go into our first jobs and like become the CEO within a month. And like, not to say like, you can't do that. I will never be the person to look someone in the eyes and say, you can't do that. But it's yeah. important to understand and internalize what the analyst position and what an incoming position, the value that that brings on like a level of scales. Yeah. And I think it's really hard because when you do come in and you kind of have no idea what you're in for or what the learning curve is going to yeah, look like. Yeah, you don't know how highly you're supposed to be performing. Yeah, especially in finance too. I mean, every role is going to look so different and team dynamics are going to look different. And um, I was thinking about, I think, especially right when I graduated, like what success and failure looked like and, and felt yeah. like, um, especially in those first few months. And I totally, totally would say I, I still kind of suffer from this now it's so much easier to feel the failures rather than celebrate the little mm. successes. And I think that is especially um, present when, again, when you're starting out as an analyst and the biggest, most important thing you do that day might literally be, you know, editing those PowerPoints and then sending the books to print and flipping through and making sure they look good. And then giving it to your team to take to a meeting when that can kind of feel like, oh, well, I didn't even do that much. When you still brought it to completion, sometimes it's easy to not kind of celebrate that and say, okay, I did my job today. Because then two days later, you know, if you're in a meeting just with your team and like a sit down or something a little bit more low key, um, and someone asks you a question and you don't immediately know the answer, you oftentimes are going to sit there and be like, oh my gosh. And the negative self-talk starts and you're like, I can't do this job. I couldn't even answer that question. Oh my gosh. And it's so much easier to get hung up on those things. And at the end of the day, you look back and you're like, oh, that was just a part of the learning curve. Like that's going to happen in any role. Yeah. And I think it just, it breaks my heart when I look back at how hard I was on myself, mm. especially in, in that first year. And I think um, if you kind of go in with, uh, you know, not to be too overly optimistic or, or cheerful about it all, but it's like, if you do go in and say like, okay, if the biggest thing I did today was print those books, then hell yeah, I printed the books. I made sure that part of the meeting was checked off and that took a little bit of stress off of someone else's plate. I learned how to do it. I did it. I did my job. Like you still have to celebrate those little yes. things. That's important. Yeah. And how did you overcome those thoughts of doubt? And do you think that any of it was amplified because you were in such an established internship program with so many other people your age to compare yourself to? 
It was really interesting. I mean, again, I think what I loved most about my experience in banking um, and with my team was that I, I can honestly say I never really felt that competitive pressure, which I know is not everyone's experience. And I, I feel so fortunate. I met honestly, most of my best friends in New York now through my internships and through that first job. Um, I think, well, first of all, when you say, how did you overcome it? I can't say I overcame it because yeah. I still will, you know, screw something up in a meeting and be like, I'm going to get fired tomorrow. That, that's it. Like, I'm not going to get on my job. desk. <laughs> um, I think everyone, everyone suffers from that a little bit. Um, but I do think it all comes back to how little students know when they start these internships mm. in finance. And it's like, you know, I think, I think back to when I started recruiting and what a lot of um, people I'm sure that, you know, are going through now. And we were talking before about the, the technical skills, right. And the technical questions you prepare for. And what is so disappointing to me is that you have kids who are breaking their backs to memorize answers to these questions. You probably haven't even taken the class that explains what any of the pieces of it mean yet. So you're literally memorizing answers to impress somebody. And you have recruiters who make you feel that way and who make you feel like if you don't get those questions correct, you're out of a job. You're not going to get the prestigious spot here. And they tend to value that. Not all, not all recruiters, but several will value that over maybe someone who has a different background. They're coming from a different major. They may have life experiences that have prepared them infinitely more for that role. And someone who, again, happened to memorize the right questions Mm -hmm. off of a forum they found online. And um, what I think is really sad is you put this narrative in your head that you need to know those skills. You need to have those memorized. And then you have to come in and be able to whip out a financial model, even though you've never learned how to do it. And then the reality is when you start, you are doing things that, again, can sometimes feel a little bit administrative or that feel very misaligned with kind of what you expected the day-to-day to be. And I do think that's a breeding ground of a lot of the negative self-talk because okay. I remember talking with my friends, and this is even crazier when I look back on it. I remember being in like month three and four when we graduated and we're like, well, we haven't had to do our own financial model yet. Does that mean that we're going to be bad at our job? Like, are they not letting us do it because they know we're not going to be good at it? And you just talk yourself in circles because mm. you have this idea of like, well, a financial analyst is supposed to come in and be the backbone of the entire operation. And that's just what you learn over time. And, and I know you'd mentioned at one point kind of passive versus active learning, um, and it really is is such a blend. And a lot of it comes down to circumstance of again what's happening with different with different deals your team may be working on. I know with the role that I'm in now, again, I never had to um, in my last role like come up with a price target for, for okay. a stock. Like part of what I'm doing now for the companies that I cover is um, you know, again, we we have these portfolios that are made up of equities on a couple of those portfolios. Um, there are names like company names that I follow and I am responsible for knowing what is happening with them day in, day out. If the stock price shoots up 10% in the middle of the day, what happens there? You know, if, uh, if something's happening overnight, there's a big news story, be able to, um, explain that to the team in the morning and along, uh, alongside kind of those day in, day out parts, 
um, we do try to have some sort of a sense of valuation around the companies that can look a little bit different depending on the size of the company, um, how long it's been public, sort of where it's at in its growth story. So we don't stick to like a really aggressive like price target um, stock picking method or anything like that. But as the financial analyst, we like to have an idea of maybe where we think it should trade around roughly. I never had to do that before. So when I started in this role, I'm like, oh my God, how the heck do I do that? I don't even know where that model would start. And it honestly was for a long time, a lot of me going and Googling and trying different pieces and coming back to my team and being like, does this make sense? Do you feel like this is helpful? Um, And what's really cool with my team now is that there's really no two people with the same job. So it's not like I had another person who'd even done the job I do. Oh, that's Um, so interesting. Yeah. It's, oh my gosh, so crazy. Cause the company is very small, we have less than 30 employees. Um, but it's so cool to learn from those people because they've all kind of worn different hats at different times in the company. Um, that was what stood out to me the most actually, when I first did my interviews, like every person I talked to was like, I've been here for eight years. I've been here for 10 years. I've built my career here. And that speaks volumes to me in terms of culture, especially Um, coming from a situation where you said on the first day, people were looking at what's next. I I was going to ask you about that. If you've seen that's a different career trajectory in what you're doing now versus what you started. Totally, totally different. And that was something that was really important to me. I think when I even made the decision to leave, because again, I I consider myself very fortunate. I, I wasn't one of those people who was like absolutely desperate to get out of their job. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I wasn't really intending to leave. And it was, um, I always use the word serendipitous occasion. I mean, the, the stars really aligned and it was kind of a dream job situation, something that I had in my 10 year plan. And suddenly it was February, um, six, seven months into a job. And I was like, do I do this? Do I try it? I mean, this feels really radical. And I'm, I'm so happy that I did, but part of that decision-making matrix for me was like, I want to be somewhere where I see a path forward for myself and where I want to have skin in this game. Um, And I I don't want to feel, I never want to get to a point where I feel apathy towards the projects that I'm on. And, and, uh, you know, friends and I've had the same conversation in the last few years as people have kind of come in and out of banking specifically. And I I hate to harp on banking, but I know that's where... um, a lot of people end up post-grad, so hopefully it's helpful. But I think it's really easy to fall into a trap in any of those analyst roles early on where you start to feel very, um, again, kind of apathetic towards the work that you're working on, but you still are experiencing these extreme levels of stress. Mm. And I think that when you really hit that point where you're like, okay, I don't feel motivated by the work I'm doing. I don't feel motivated by the people around me. And I don't feel motivated to want to continue in this job but I still can barely sleep at night because I'm so anxious about the next day. And the thought of screwing up has me in heart palpitations. I mean, what a terrible mindset to be stuck in. And, and I think that's kind of what I've identified as the point where you should really be stepping back and saying, well, what am I hoping to get out of this at this point? You know, um, like, what am I learning and, and where can I go? And with the role that I've now come into at Domini, that is what I appreciate the most is that it's a totally different role Um, but I knew coming in that something that they value is, you know, coming in, taking ownership of your position. But then if you see something someone else in the firm is working on that you're interested in, 
jump in and help them out and get your feet wet in that department too and kind of keep your role interesting and evolving over time and and that's how you know you you create employees I think that want to stick around so yeah it seems very entrepreneurial yeah yeah I think you know for being a company that's been around for I think over 30 years now it's amazing how kind of entrepreneurial and spirit it continues to feel and that's coming you know from me who is a, a new employee but you know, our workspace kind of feels very startup-y. It's all open desks and things like that. Unfortunately, given COVID, <laughs> I have not had a lot of um, opportunities to kind of be in that really collaborative space with my team. But that being said, even on our morning investment team Zoom meetings, it is literally an hour that is just dedicated to collaborative teamwork, yeah. brainstorm, think of ideas, what's happening in the world right now that we need to be talking about. And then in the the few days that I've been able to have other members of the investment team in the office with me, it's just so much fun to have everyone literally like right next to each other on the desk, having those conversations in real time. So it is cool having the kind of the legacy that the company has, but also kind of keeping things fresh and, and in the loop. It sounds like you're definitely the youngest on your team. Is that intimidating at all, especially being at a small company, especially coming from a place where there are so many other people and starting analysts your age? It was, I think I thought more of it when I started than anybody else. Than anyone else. That's interesting. Yeah. And it makes so much sense though. Yeah. And it is really fun. I will say, and they laugh at me all of the time. I mean, I spent 25 minutes this week on a one-on-one with my manager explaining the cultural significance of red being re-released by Taylor oh. Swift. Um, well, good. I'm so. glad you did. <laughs> so, I mean, there are those moments where they're like, oh my God, you like youthful millennials, you yes. like even your trends, what is happening here? But it is so much fun. And when you read all the studies that are like, you know, studies say that having a broad array of opinions and ages and backgrounds make for better investment decisions. Yeah. I mean, when you have this group of six, seven individuals who are coming in that are, you know, hugely different age range, background, um, ethnicity, uh, orientation, whatever it may be, it truly is a very di- diverse group of people. And when that is how we start our day, talking about the companies we invest in, different trends that we should maybe be thinking about, you are hearing such vast opinions mm. and one thing that was really fun for me when I started in the role and, you know, as I, as I said, um, a fun part about being at a small company is like, you can kind of help out in other teams. Um, a member of the marketing department reached out when I started and they were like, listen, we heard that podcasts are kind of a thing. <laughs> Obviously it's pretty funny now. Here we we, are. Yeah. She's like, you know, we heard, we heard podcasts are a pretty fun thing. We might want to do some advertising at podcasts. What podcast do you listen to? And that kind of kickstarted this whole conversation and we got on Zoom and she's like, well, people in their 20s don't want to hear about mutual funds. They don't want to hear about, you know, investing for retirement. I was like, yeah, they do. I mean, yeah, that's what I was about to say. I was like, that's yeah. so funny because that was like one of my first questions I had right, for you. Right. And it's, it's pretty amazing to see the point we've gotten to in terms of kind of expanded um, access towards financial like information. Yeah, like and, and democratization. Yeah. And it's really, really cool to watch that happen. But that was something that, you know, we had all these conversations and different members of my team. And again, marketing team are like, so you really think that we should be 
spending some time trying to target, you know, the the 25 to 30 age range. I was like, yeah. And we ended up going forward with um, a, a marketing campaign with Morning Brew. We had an ad with them last year. So that was really, really fun because that was something that I've been subscribing to since I was a freshman in college. And, and they have the done team. advertising the right way, oh, tying it into their newsletter. Whoever is, is in charge over there is doing like, uh, they're... They're smart. That's all I have to say. It's, it's, it's amazing. So it was really cool to, you know, when you think about projects that you take ownership and even outside of, again, the dreaded analyst rule, um, <laughs> when you, when you are kind of wrapped up in that headspace, you have a really firm understanding of everything that's going on operationally around you. And then you can totally jump ship and be like, okay, well, how do we now market this? And yeah. From them was so cool. But then kind of getting to give the, um, I'm technically like the last year that's considered a millennial. I was born in 96. So I, I cling to that. My little sisters are Gen Z and they always make fun of me. Apparently today there was something out that blonde hair is like now canceled by Gen Z. So you can imagine. Okay. As a natural brunette. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Well, you're not, you're not getting canceled by Gen Z then. So <laughs> no, but, but it's so, it's so funny when, when you have that again, kind of like I mentioned earlier, the the broad array of opinions and experiences coming from the different generations. That's so funny that you say that because my internship last summer and I'm still interning and working there now, um, they call themselves a cultural consultancy. It's so cool what they do. They spot micro trends and see and macro trends and see how those will materialize. And some of the stuff that I've taken away just from listening and seeing what they do is that even within the same geography, within the same demographic of age or race or whatnot, there are so many niche cultural differences that are so important to stay in tune to, just as it's important to listen to the news or to follow the markets. Yeah. I mean, it's even crazy in working in the the kind of ESG space now. Um, it's so crazy to think that this whole kind of broad topic was introduced to me Oh my God, probably seven, eight years ago now. And, um, you know, I, I think back to my experience recruiting in college and looking at jobs and these jobs didn't exist, especially yeah. at an entry level position. And, um, you read, you know, articles now or different surveys, things like that. And you read these crazy statistics that it's like 80% of millennials and Gen Z say that they want their investments to be aligned with certain ecological components or with different humanitarian um, movements, things like that. And it's kind of the only way (laughs) that people are aged and in younger generations, that's like the only way they want to manage their money now. It's not like I feel like the generations ahead of us, you sort of are still in that context of like, well, do I choose to put my money in a product that's oriented towards that? Like I can kind of pan select when I want to take an ESG lens and when I don't. And I really love being a part of this movement right now and and watching it in real time. It's just Mm. the coolest thing. But the fact that I firmly believe as we move forward, it's not even going to be a matter of like, well, do I invest you know, in impact funds and do I find ESG oriented, you know, firms to put my money with, that's just going to be a no brainer. It's going to be how investing is done. And I love that we get to be a part of that movement. I mean, and even, um, 
when I was a senior at BC, I took um, sustaining the biosphere as my nice. like science credit, which I cannot plug that class enough. I think that they're still offering yeah, it. Yeah. Um, if you can take it, it was probably... Take times were last week. So oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, dang it. If, if anyone's listening and can still take it, I there is no class I recommend at BC more than that. Of course, it is such a great like self-introspection moment, but also the information regarding kind of your footprint and your relationship with the planet and things like that. I mean, it was just, it was the best experience, but I remember at the time of taking that class, learning about, you know, we did this exercise one day and I bet you could find it online, but you'd basically go through and say, well, how many times do you think you've flown in the last year? How many times did you go shopping? How many times can you brush your teeth? Like a litany of different things like that. And then it spit out for you kind of like what your personal Mm. was. And I remember at the time looking at the shopping one and I didn't even think I was doing much shopping. You know, I I was like any other college student or college girl. Yeah. Um, I was like, wow, that is crazy how much of an impact that makes. And then when I graduated, I got super into Run to Runway, which I still actively use. Yeah. coming out of the pandemic, especially when things are opening back up again. And they have really cool metrics that are like, you know, see what your personal like saved carbon footprint has been since you started renting clothes. Like by not shopping for these many months, this is what you saved that could have gone into the environment, but didn't. And it's things like that, where you think back even five, six years and companies never would have been doing that. But yeah. um, I, I don't think that that's a trend that's going anywhere. And I think that that's just the mentality of our generation. I agreed hundred percent. Too optimistic, but um I I firmly believe in that. Yeah, very similar to that. I'm in an ethics of climate change class right now and I agree with everything you have to say. I also think what is so important in the space right now and what I'm very passionate about kind of as the the whole mindset around again, at least in the um investment space or in kind of the the broader conversations around like your, your footprint, your sustainability plan of your life. Um, I think it's really important to recognize that even being able to do some of those things is a really privileged position to be in. Like sometimes it can be so much uh, more expensive to quote unquote shop sustainably, to cook sustainably, to be on those diets. Um, That is not something that's accessible to everybody. And so while it's awesome when you can take those really big measures, you know, as an individual, like stop shopping at certain stores or, um, you know, prioritize some of those purchases, whatever it may be. It's important to recognize, I think, that not everyone can do that. And just because you can't doesn't mean that you are a climate activist failure or that you are anti-planet and things like that. And um, I, I also love that about, again, how the conversation has widened, like we said, around financial literacy and with the ESG space in particular, I think it's so important that as that space kind of gains popularity with this generation, we continue to make those investment products really accessible. Um, We continue to kind of support the banks and financial institutions that are providing a wider array of products to the previously underserved it all comes down to access. And I think it's really exciting to watch that evolve, but it makes me so furious sometimes when I see, you know, whether it's influencers or or people talking Mm. about in the news, it's like, well, shame on you for shopping at so-and-so because they 
kill the planet and all this. And for some people, that's what they can afford. And um, that's the reality for for most of the for most of the globe. So it really is like doing the the bits and pieces that you can, but we all have to be a part of the access story where where we're able to step in. And um that's something that I I hope I can be a part of as my career kind of evolves and uh, and changes. I'm so thankful you brought that up because I had that exact conversation with someone earlier on the podcast. Her name is Amira Hamuda. She is a fashion designer. Um, she Her whole thing is like sustainable, mod- modest dress. And we did talk about like that exact thing in her approach to yeah, design and to marketing, that it is a really hard balance for not just the consumer side, but for the producer side too, because she is a small yeah. business and her right. products are like, made from great quality and she was like that's a tough place to be in marketing to a younger generation as well yeah it's it's a it's a really difficult space and I love seeing the innovation of different fashion designers also I can't wait to listen to that episode now that's amazing um but seeing what some people have done to kind of market their products or their platforms as like, okay, maybe you make this your investment piece and then you don't shop for anything else for a few months or they're working with other brands that kind of help create a more realistic sustainability plan for how you can shop effectively, smartly, um, on a budget as like a very normal person. Um, I know some of the brands that I love that claim to be the most like organic and sustainable. I can afford like two or three things on their site what the heck is this? Um, but, but it totally makes sense from the producer side. And again, you, you have to support where you can. It's all about just kind of meeting the road, you know, where it meets you. <laughs> um, again, not to oversimplify, but um, that saying. it's a, it's a fun space. It's evolving. And, and I think that'll continue to become sort of a more uh, hopefully affordable, affordable plan for people and that it changes in that way that makes it more accessible. Mary, I think we have touched on everything <laughs> that like I wanted to, that I could Amazing. want to in like, the next 10 episodes. I learned so much. I'm so thankful you could come on. Is there anything that we didn't speak about that has been really impactful to your career or to your experience in general as a professional woman? It's so cheesy, but um, I'll totally like do the, the raw, raw BC plug that, um, you know, when you graduate and kind of three or four years, you always are hearing this like men and women for others, you know, be, be the one that goes out and lights the world aflame. And that can feel so cheesy. And you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go save the world. But, um, you know, from some of the conversations we were even having before we got started, I think there's something very intrinsically unique to the BC students mentality that they want to be a friend to others um, they want to be a leader, but they want to uplift everyone with them as they lead. It's not the one who's walking into a room and trotting all over everybody else. They're the one who's going to, you know, kind of take you by the hand and bring them with you. And I think especially in, um, you know, we're talking about the analyst role and, and financial services, um, because it has such a nasty stigma of being this cutthroat place. It doesn't have to be. And I have been so proud to be a BC student coming into that workforce and the comments I've received from managers, from bosses um, that highlight kind of that dual-sided leadership potential and, um, you know, leadership capability while also being the team cheerleader and number one kind of 
team coordinator to make everyone feel like they're included and uplifted. And I think I, I totally credit that to kind of the BC spirit. Um, so as you go out and go forth, you know, those, those things sound cheesy in the moment, but they really do mean a lot. And the more you can internalize that, I think the more successful you will be. I, I still try to remember that, you know, every day when I go to work. And that's a 